On this Reformation Sunday, we're continuing a series that we began earlier this fall on the greatness of ordinary grace. It's a series on the means of grace, which was one of the chief characteristics and more strengthened are the preached word and this week of the Lord's Supper can change the state of Oklahoma. It sounds like a really lofty title for a sermon, but indeed, we believe Scripture teaches that it can indeed change not only your heart, your family, your community, the state, even the world. So if you're able, would you please stand together as you read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll begin reading at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Oh, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. The Lord's Supper is actually a very, very powerful instrument to help you in your faith with Jesus, but it's also very misunderstood. I want to try to show you five powers or five things that the Lord's Supper practically does for you in worship. Five things. But first, let me tell you a story and let me share about my own personal experience. In 1738, there were a group of men, brothers, they were Anglicans, who lived in London and they met regularly at the house on Aldersgate. That was the home of a man named William Bray. And William Bray gathered these guys together. They were kind of empty and lifeless in their spirituality. They wanted to think about theology together. They wanted to pray together. And so they created this little group of men to meet together on Aldersgate. Many of you, especially if you're Methodist, know about what happened at Aldersgate with John Wesley. 
And several weeks ago, I mentioned about how John Wesley at this meeting when William Holland was reading out of the preface to the commentary of Galatians, several steps removed from Scripture itself, that Wesley's heart was strangely warmed and he believed the gospel. Well, we don't often know about the other things that happened at Aldersgate. And one of the things that happened at Aldersgate was a week before John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed by the gospel, his brother, off. Uh, Charles, the great hymn writer, who also attended these meetings, was there at William Bray's house. And you can read about what happened at Altersgate because all these guys kept journals, and you can, you can go and you can read them. And on May the 17th, 1738, Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, I received Christ, but not the sacrament, or I received the sacrament, rather, but not Christ. I didn't get it. I took the sacrament, but I didn't really feel like I understood what was going on in it. Which is interesting because he took the Lord's Supper, as many of us are about to do together, and he really didn't understand what was going on. And the very same night, if you read William Holland's journal, he says that for the first time in my life, taking the Lord's Supper, I got it. And it was like light flooded into my heart, and I understood the gospel in a new way. So here you have two men, same day, same event. Lord's Supper, one guy doesn't get it. And one guy's heart is transformed by the Lord's Supper. Has that ever been your experience? It's been mine. And we come and take the Lord's Supper here every week, and it's not rote, but we do it because we actually believe that there are some very, very powerful things that happen to us when we take the Lord's Supper. And there are, I'm going to share five, there are many more than that, but five come out of this text. Why do some of us who take the Lord's Supper feel like they have a real sense of Christ's presence and others of us just feel lifeless and there's a kind of emptiness inside of us and we're kind of going through the motions? Why? Well, let's look at the powers of it and let's see. Five powers. Number one. The Lord's Supper, number one, is an enormous resource for your spiritual growth. In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is sharing with the Corinthian church a response to a letter they had written to him with all of these issues and complaints. And beginning in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul begins to explain and answer their questions. And they ask him, for example, what about marriage? And Paul says, oh, it's good to be married, but it's also good to remain single if you're able, like me. Well, what about tongues? Oh, it's great to speak in tongues. I speak in tongues more than anyone. But if you speak in tongues, it needs to be intelligible to other people. Therefore, there needs to be an interpreter. And other issues, yes, it's a good thing, but, yes, but, until you get to the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, and Paul surprises his readers by going off script, and they, they didn't write him about the Lord's Supper, but Paul thinks it's so important that he interjects into his argument and says, now, there is an issue that I have no uh, commendation for. I'm not going to give you any kind of affirmation. I'm not going to say you're doing it well, because frankly, you're not. Look at verse 11, 17. But, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, Paul assumes that they are practicing the Lord's Supper often, verse 26. They're proclaiming his death, verse 26. And it's assumed to be a part of Christian worship. 
And most people think, well, the Lord's Supper is a way for me to grow in a deeper relationship with the Lord. And that is true. That's only the first reason. But that is very true. But the Lord's table is so often misunderstood because on the one hand, for example, Roman Catholics tend, this is a gross overgeneralization, but it is nevertheless a helpful way to break it down. They tend to overemphasize the power of the Lord's table. And on the other hand, Protestants traditionally have tended to underemphasize what happens at the Lord's table. And in the Reformation, as you learned from Pastor Scott last week, the Protestant world divided over what happens at the table. Some people believed that Christ was present, as Lutherans do, physically in the elements, and some people believed he was just a memorial, he was just a symbol to remember what Christ had done. And Calvin actually chartered a third way, the great compromiser, and he said, listen, this can't possibly be Jesus' physical body and blood because in John 6, it says you eat, his, you, know, you eat his body, you eat his blood, but Jesus was there in the upper room. Like, he was there. He hadn't been killed yet. So how could this be his body and blood? Jesus was there. He hadn't been killed. And besides, in Greek, when Jesus says, this is my body, this in Greek is, is neuter. It's not masculine as it would be if he was referring to the bread being his body. But on the other hand, Jesus did say in John 6 that you need to eat his body and drink his blood. So in some way, Jesus is present in the elements with us, not physically, but spiritually present. It's not merely a memorial, as many Protestants believe, but it's also not physically his body and blood, as many Roman Catholics and even some high church Protestants believe. Jesus is here spiritually in our midst, but though not in a physical way, he's here. And it's meant to be an enormous resource for you. Because people sometimes ask, like, I feel like I'm, I'm like William Bray and the Wesley brothers at Aldersgate. Like, I need a breakthrough. I need, I need to grow in my relationship with Christ, and how do I do it? Well, the Lord's Supper is a very practical way for you, for you to do that. You know, the Lord's Supper is, is kind of like coming to your Father to be reminded of His love for you by being in communion with the Son, if your parents, you know what this, this experience is like, but just this week, there's a chair in our house that Lauren and I sit in to read in most mornings, and the other morning, our two youngest got up really early, and they're playing with Thomas the Train and Lincoln Logs here in the living room, and I'm sitting there having my coffee, and I'm reading early in the morning, and Augie, our youngest, is playing with cars, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just wants to crawl up my leg and get into my lap, and so he crawls up, and he gets into my lap, and he just gives me a hug for like three seconds. And I try to hold him longer than that. He goes, ah, and he, and he wants to get out of the hug and he wants to go back and play. And, and so I go back to my reading and then about five minutes later, here he comes, crawls up my leg, wants to get on my lap and he comes and he just gives me a hug. And then he relaxes and he goes back and he goes and plays. And it was, it was a stark reminder of what the Lord's Supper is for God's people. Like coming to the Lord's table is like crawling into the lap of your Savior whose arms are open wide for you. And we don't stay there forever, but it's just a reminder, an intimate reminder that He is your Father and that He loves you. And when you come to the Lord's table, you come to the Lord's table the same way a child might just want to feel the hug of his father. Listen, I just want to be in His presence. I know He's there. I can see Him, but I just want to feel His arms around me. 
The Lord's Supper is, first of all, it's an enormous spiritual resource if you will avail yourself to it. It's the first of five reasons. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. A converting ordinance. Yes, it's a converting ordinance. Now, the Puritans, most of whom, most of the Puritans were actually Anabaptists. They, they had a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Most of them did. But even the Puritans, they had a, a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Even they understood that the Lord's table can become one of the best ways to preach the gospel. Because what does it say in verse 26? It says, I proclaim the Lord's death. In the very fencing, the very marking off of the table, declaring who can come to the table, Christians or and asking non-Christians to let the elements pass them by and not partake. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. You're kind of holding before the world saying, do you believe this stuff or not? And one of the things that the Lord's table does to us, and one of the reasons why we've chosen to practice it every week, is not because we believe that it's somehow magical. We don't. But we believe that it's a way for the gospel preached to land on you because you can't escape the elements. You have to take real bread and real wine and eat of them and drink of them. It forces you to come to grips in real time and space with real physical elements in a rather abstract service otherwise. Protestant services, by and large, are very abstract. And you can come to the service and you can hear the word preached, and you can, maybe you'll say something uh, back like we do in our service. Maybe you won't. But the Lord's table doesn't allow the service to remain abstract. It beckons you to deal with you before the Lord. In fact, there are people in our church, several people, who've said that they came to Christ, not at the sermon, but at the Lord's table. This time last year, we baptized uh, a TU student named Josh Harris. That was Josh's story. When he saw the table fenced, he got it. And it caused him to ask himself, am I relying on my self-saving strategies or do I rely on the finished work of Christ? So it's a converting ordinance for those who are in our midst who are not believers. But it's also a covenant renewal ceremony for Christians. It's, it's like renewing your wedding vows, as it were, with the Lord. It's like saying... Do you still believe the vows you took when you became a member of this church? Do you still believe the vows you took when you placed your faith in Christ? It's an incredibly, it's an enormous resource for your spiritual growth if you'll do it. It's good for your spiritual growth. Secondly, it's a converting ordinance. Third, it builds community in a way nothing else in Christian worship can build community. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, was that in, ancient, in the ancient Roman world, the Romans, until 321 A.D., operated off of an eight-day work week. And slowly, it became a seven-day work week in 321, officially. But there were about 100 or 200 years where people were kind of coming off of that calendar, and they were going to adopt the seven-day Jewish calendar. So a Sunday for a Jew might fall on, fall on a weekday for a typical citizen in the area. And so they would often have worship together. It wouldn't often be on the same, everybody wouldn't be looking at the same day, but they would know the day of worship. And so therefore, worship was often held before work or late at night. And what would happen is that 
the Lord's table was something more than just partaking of a, one loaf of bread and wine. It was actually a full meal. And when they partook of this meal together, it could have been a work day for them. And so the independently wealthy folks, they could cut out from work early and they would show up at worship. They didn't have synchronized clocks like we have. They would know that we're doing worship together. And so they would come and they would bring it at dinner and they would enjoy that dinner together. And some of them, by the time that the businessmen could get off work and cut out early, some of these guys had already eaten. And then the slaves, it depends on what kind of slave you were. If you were a, a tutor, then maybe you could get off early. If you were a, um, a, a manual labor slave, you probably couldn't get off until the rest of the family was in bed. If you're an au pair or a nanny, you probably couldn't come until late at night. And so by the time that the rest of the people came to worship, some of the people had already eaten and they had already gotten drunk on the communion wine. And Paul says, this is not how it should be. The Lord's table was meant to build community in the local church and you guys were abusing it. You're coming early and you're partaking before the other brothers have and you're holding up all of your excess food in their face. They can't afford anything. They're slaves, but they're brothers of you because they're Christians and you're not sharing with them. And Paul says that the Lord's table is actually the way that you understand and build community because we all partake of one bread. The loaf is one. We take a piece off of the loaf, signifying that we are one body together. Despite our economic or our racial divisions or divides or characteristics, we are one people together. And if you let the Lord's Supper become a resource to help you and to help you help your children understand that when you become a Christian, you become part of something bigger than your local bloodlines. The only thing thicker than blood is the waters of Christian baptism. And you become a new family. When the Lord's Supper, as Scott taught us last week, is a picture back to what Old Testament rite or practice? Anyone? The Passover. And in the Passover, who did Jews take the Passover with? They took it with their families. You can ask a Jew today, if you have Jewish friends, ask them. It, it's like their Thanksgiving meal together, as it were. It's this, it, they get together with their families like you and I do at Thanksgiving. But Jesus takes that Passover right, and at the upper, in the upper room, who is he with? He's not with Mary and his brothers, James and the other. No, he's with his disciples. And Jesus is extending the family, saying it's not just bloodline, but he's partaking of the family Passover meal with whom? With people who are not his blood family, signifying to us that the Lord's table is to be celebrated for all believers. It is to show us that we are all part of one family and that we need each other to help raise our children, to help us understand one another better, to help us understand our place in God's covenant community. The baptism is a community-forming meal. And one of the ways, very practically, that we see how the Lord's Supper changes people, on a very practical level, please hear me. Do you know one of the greatest epidemics in Oklahoma right now, besides the opioid epidemic, is a mental health crisis. And loneliness and depression lead the way. And there is a tendency amongst Christians, especially amongst Protestant Christians, 
to participate in Christian worship by watching them through our screens. And if you're sick and you can't make it to worship, it's a wonderful way to be able to participate in worship on those days irregularly when you cannot make it to worship. But what happens to you is you, if you make that a habit and you're watching worship through a screen, you're missing out on what an enormous resource the Lord's table is. The Lord's table was meant to build community, and it can only build community if you're there, physically present, at worship, because the Lord's table changes you. It reminds you of what Christ has done for you. It helps you ask yourself, do I really believe this? It builds you into a larger community. Fourth, the Lord's table makes you a person of integrity. It takes what you believe on the inside and it links it to the way you act on the outside. What do I mean? Look at what the text says. It says, whoever therefore eats this bread, verse 27, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't say whoever is worthy or unworthy. That's not what it says. It's referring not to the person. It's referring to the method by which the person comes to the table. You don't come to the Lord's table perfect. You only come to the Lord's table repentant. That's the only qualification for it. And when it says you have to discern the body and blood, it's saying, do you understand that Christ is here? Are you coming to say that I rely not on my own self-saving strategies, but upon Christ? And if you believe that, it can become an enormous spiritual gift to you, an enormous resource to strengthen you in your faith. And the old word for the Lord's table was the word Eucharist, which is the word, the Greek word for thanksgiving. It's a thanksgiving meal, and that is how it should be received, with thanks and with gratitude. So that when you come forward, you are grateful that when you confess your faith, as we did, that Paul led us through in the Heidelberg Catechism, you say, yes, I believe that. And it helps you to put what you believe internally with the way you act externally, and it asks the question of you, do I live like I really believe that my only comfort in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I really believe that not a hair can fall from my head without his sovereign mercy and care? Do I really believe that? And there are some of us, quite frankly, who will say, listen, I'll fix this on Monday. There's a particular sin that you're struggling over. And on the outside, you profess faith and you are a Christian. You may have been a Christian for many years, but on the inside, you're, you're really wrestling with sin. And you say, I'll fix that on Monday. I'll fix that on Monday. And you've been saying that for months. It may be that you need to let the table pass you by. Do you remember in the Old Testament how there were people who would take vows, of, they'd fast, and they would say, I will not eat until such and such. The prophets often did this. Or people, even people wanted Paul dead, and they said, I will not eat until Paul is dead, Paul says of some people. And in some ways, you know, that can become very legalistic. But in other ways, that's actually, a, in a sense, it's very true to what the Lord's table is about. It's saying that I will not eat the Lord's table until I'm able to fight this sin. And if I continue to say, okay, I'll get to it on Monday, then friends, you may not be actually addressing the sin that you are aware of and you may be cultivating it. 
and helping it grow over time by ignoring it. Some of you, even if you're Christian, some of you may need to check your heart and do not feel pressure to come and take the Lord's table every week. Let it be for you a way that Jesus holds you accountable. Check your hearts lest you come and make a mockery of the Lord. However, on the other hand, many of us Christians struggle with doubts and we don't really understand what we believe or we're struggling with the view of Scripture or we're struggling with understanding the implications of the gospel for certain parts of our life or human sexuality or whatever it may be. You're struggling with these doubts and you feel like, I can't come to the Lord's table until I've got all my theology right. No, you will never have all your theology right until glory. And so if you have your doubts, but you trust in Christ and you're struggling with your doubts, run to the table. Some of you should probably wait and not come to the table, but some of you with doubt should probably come to the table. Do you see the dynamic that's at play here? It challenges you, please hear me, it challenges me to become men and women of integrity, to not just rush up to the table, but to reflect upon it and to come soberly and to come with solemnity because that's the view with which Paul endorses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if people don't come to the table, listen, this shouldn't even be of interest to others of you. You should come. And those of you who choose not to come, it shouldn't be of interest if you'll be noticed or not. You're too busy doing business with the Lord. So do it. But we do it together because there are weeks when I struggle over sin and I should not take the Lord's Supper. And there are weeks when even I have questions about theology and that is all the more reason why I should celebrate that Jesus is there and run to his table. So the Lord's Supper is a, of an enormous spiritual benefit to you because of your own spiritual growth. It's a converting ordinance. It, it helps us ask the question, do we actually believe the gospel? Are you with me? Please help me. Yes, thank you. It also helps build community reminds us that we are not just members of families, but in Christ, our family lines have been drawn much wider than we think. And we should therefore treat each other as such. And it helps us become men and women of integrity by challenging us with are we fighting on the inside what we profess to believe on the outside, or are we able to take our doubts and bring them to the table for the Lord to strengthen us and nourish us by the sacraments? Now, lastly, one more thing about community that I think is important. Notice that when, when Paul records these words of Jesus, the first words of Jesus about the Lord's Supper ever recorded, when Paul records these words of Jesus, notice the way he introduces it. Jesus, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also received, that on the night in which Jesus was what? Betrayed. There were people in Corinth who felt betrayed by their brothers and sisters. And Paul, being the gentle and kind pastor that he did, saying, even Jesus has felt betrayed by his brothers and sisters. Which is why the Lord's table is not merely a vertical experience. You don't just come and take the Lord's table siloed, alone, as an individual Western American or Christian. You take it also as a member of a body, and therefore, if there are people in the church with whom you need to reconcile, Matthew chapter 5, if a man is at the altar... And he knows someone has something against him. What does he do? He leaves his gift at the altar and he goes and he's reconciled. If there's someone in the church or someone in your life with whom you need to be reconciled, go and be reconciled with them before you take the supper. 
And let the supper be for you the powerful spiritual encouragement it can be if you would apply it to your relationships. The passage of the peace in the history of the church is not just a time to let kids go to the Trinity Kids area. Historically, it's been a time when brothers and sisters in Christ have reconciled. If there's any need for reconciliation, they did it in worship on the spot there. How about you? Are there people in your life that you need to reconcile with today? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to take steps toward reconciling that relationship? One of the best ways to take the Lord's Supper is not just with your family, but it's with the groups of families. If you're in a community group, it's great to take it with your community group. If you're not in a community group, it's great to take it with groups of families as you come forward, symbolizing for you. You will help your children know better about the gospel when you take it with groups of families rather than your own family because you're teaching your children about theology when you do that. You're saying we are part of a broader family and we partake of the elements together up here. Now lastly, spiritual resource, converting ordinance, helps you understand community, makes your life a life of integrity, links your internal beliefs with your external behavior. And lastly, if you let the Lord's Supper, if you let it, it can change the state of Oklahoma. That's not preacher hyperbole. Many historians will tell you that in the medieval church many, many years ago, when the Protestant Reformation happened, the reform came not just in our understanding of the gospel, but it came in the way that we did church together. And for 50 or 100 years, sociologists, historians will tell you that people, preachers had a hard time getting people to be quiet in the worship service. The reformers would preach and people would talk all through their service. They would just talk. They'd mill around and they'd talk. They'd go over here and they'd talk. They'd mill around and talk. Why? Because for hundreds of years in the medieval church, everything at worship was done passively by the congregation and actively by the priest. It was only the priest and those at the front who sang. It was only the priest who drank the wine. He only gave the parishioners the bread. And it was only the priest who did all the work. And so the congregation just kind of came, and by their mere presence, they felt like they were being sanctified by the mass or by the sacrament. And so they developed in the habit of the church, of church life. You just talked through the sermon. But what happened after time, over about 50 years, when people began to listen to the sermon, the word preached, and then partake of the sacraments together, what happened? Not everybody agrees with this, but many people have documented it. That one of the reasons why democracy took hold in Protestant countries in Europe was because in worship, it stopped being passive and started being active. And worshipers stopped letting the pastor or the priests do all the work. Remember, the priest would, would, would break the bread and he would, he would do everything up front. And the people begin to participate in worship and have an active engagement in worship. So you don't come to worship to be entertained. That's very medieval, actually. You don't come to worship to let other people do the singing. You sing. To do otherwise is not modern. It's actually very pre-modern, very medieval. But we participate together. And in so doing, the whole of Europe was changed. And democracy... Not that democracy is the only, you know, the only biblical form of government, by the way. I'm not saying that. I'm just giving you a historical example. But why did democracy take in Protestant countries? And it almost did not take 
in those countries that were predominantly Catholic. It's because of the people understanding the nature of their participation in Christian worship. And what would happen if we in Oklahoma would so lean into the sacrament and we would partake of it and we would examine ourselves, we would become men of integrity, women of integrity, that we'd understand that we all need to care for each other, that we're part of one family, that we would understand that we have to ask ourselves hard questions in coming to the Lord's table, that we would understand that it's an enormous spiritual resource for us. What if you were so empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and address some of the systemic mental health issues in our state? What if you were so empowered, given your gifts and your perspective and your profession, to help us with the opioid epidemic or to help us with the various things that assail us at a very deep and systemic level? Will it be easy to fix? Of course not. But friends, you are not called to see immediate results as Christians. You are called to die. You are called to follow Christ and to see those areas in your particular professional field that are broken and to give yourselves to help heal that area. And will it take a generation? It'll probably take five or 10, but you're called to do that. So as Christians, we cannot be merely materialistic consumers of worship. We have to push back against our culture and say the reason why we come to the Lord's Supper is because we are like little children crawling into the lap of our Savior who is here and letting him hug us and just reminding us of his presence and saying, I love you. I have done it all for you. And we do not come to the Lord's table to get God to love us more because he has already done what he will do to save us. The question is, do you believe it? The Lord's Supper can change you just like it changed William Holland on that Sunday at Aldersgate. And just like four days later, it changed Charles Wesley. When Charles Wesley again came home from that meeting at Aldersgate and he said, by faith I stood. I got it. I understand. And he received the Lord's table and he understood it for the first time in his life. And then it was, that was the 17th of May. Then the 21st of May, his brother John got it. That was when his heart was strangely warmed. Do you get it? As Charles Wesley once said in the hymn, in thy ordinance appear, come and meet thy followers here. In the right thou hast enjoined, let us now our Savior find. Do you see him? Do you know him? The Lord's table is an enormous resource for your spiritual growth. It's a converting ordinance. It helps you understand community better and your children understand it better. It helps you become a person of integrity and it can change the world. Would you be so bold as to ask the Holy Spirit to change you as you partake of it this morning? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to come to your table, not as perfect people, but as repentant people. Those needing your grace again and again to be reminded in these elements that you've purchased everything that needed purchasing on the cross. You took our sin and you gave us your righteousness. Father, would you help us to believe that? And now as we turn our eyes toward what you've physically given to us, materially, monetarily, would you help us to use our stewardship of the resources you've given us to bless you in kingdom work? Would you bless this offering? 
Gee, help us to be men and women of integrity, to spend your money in a way that honors you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.